This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Fox News Rundown Extra. I'm Dana Perino. I recently spoke with Senator Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina, about his new book, America, A Redemption Story. It follows his journey of optimism and hope, starting from his origins growing up poor, being raised by a single mom in South Carolina, to becoming a U.S. senator and rising star in the Republican Party. He explains through personal stories the power that one individual has to make a difference and his hopes and ambitions for America's future. We made some edits for time and thought you might like to hear the whole thing. So thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the weekday Fox News Rundown podcast. Now, here's best-selling author and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Senator Scott, I love the book. Thank you very much. I want to talk about everything, and I want to start at the beginning of your childhood. But before we do, I think people will want to know why now? Why write this book at this point? I look around the country, and sometimes, to be honest with you, I look around, and what I see is a lot of division and polarization. And my heart really yearns for unification. My heart yearns for hope and opportunity. My heart yearns for the kid that was optimistic when I was growing up and, and it was shattered when my parents got divorced. And so what I hope to accomplish through American a Redemption Story is to tell both sides of the ledger where we understand that pain and purpose are sometimes key components to the same formula and that sometimes obstacles precede your opportunities that while we're in hard times, the truth is, America, we are resilient. We are tough. We persevere. And in the end, we succeed. So my goal was to have a book that met the time that we're in and, and to tell the whole story, the, the, the parts of my story that really are filled with moments of prejudice and discrimination, but also the part of my story that was filled with John Moniz, a Chick-fil-A operator who happened to be white, who saw me and didn't see a black kid. He just saw a kid he could help or Dr. Monty S. Harrington. God bless an orthodontist with two <laughs> front teeth that did not like each other. Dr. Harrington changed the way I saw myself. He changed the way I interacted with people. And frankly, he might be the reason why I had the courage to ask the first girl out. So just hearing the stories of, and he happened to be white. So, so hearing the stories of how Americans just work together, not for a U.S. senator, but for a kid raised in poverty in a single parent household, struggling to survive. And my life was fed by good people of good conscience who did the right thing because they could, not because of a program. I believe that America is the solution. We are not the problem. And we need to tell that whole story. There are a couple of other senators that have books coming out this fall that I know of on the Republican side. And sometimes in this point in the election cycle, books come out as a setup for a possible presidential run. 
I'm not going to dwell on this, but I because I, I know if you're going to announce for president, you're not going to do it here on the Fox News rundown, though we would welcome it. I do wonder, though, in the future, could you see yourself as commander in chief? Well, David, that's a great question and one that I, I am not yet in a position to, to really answer. Honestly, my theory has always been do your job where you are and if the people want more, they'll ask for it. And if they don't, Thank God that you, i.e. me, I'm in the position of having served the greatest nation in a position where fewer than 2,000 Americans have ever held. That to me, from where I started to where I am, is a, an amazing story of grace and redemption. And so while I don't know what the future holds, I know that this year, my only focus can be winning my reelection. It's so difficult to live in the moment. And when you write a book about your life, you have to go back and revisit lots of things and lots of moments. And you use a couple of devices in the book of allowing other people, especially two very important women in your life to help tell your story, which I think is an effective way uh, to learn more about you. There was something in the first chapter that I wanted to ask about, which is you as a kid witnessed your mother um, decide to leave an abusive relationship and how difficult that was. And you write very movingly about that. And in the recent past, when we talk about criminal justice reform. And we talk about how could possibly the, the police maybe utilize some mental health professionals to deal with domestic violence situations. I, I've always I, I, it struck me that because you are interested in criminal justice reform, if that ever comes to mind for you, somebody right. like your mom, because women are always you know raising their hand, there could be a problem. And but luckily for your mom, she was able to get out. She was able to be safe with the grandparents. That's not the case for every woman. No question. One of the, the perhaps the most important nexus to my public service is that seven-year-old kid sitting on the side of the couch, getting ready to leave Michigan and move home to Charleston, South Carolina, and into a very small cramp home with my grandparents. Knowing that my mother was making a decision that I disagreed with and that we were leaving the idol of my life. And at the same time, wanting no more shouting and screaming in the house. I look back at that kid and I really do think that, can I do something today that makes that kid, wherever he lives in America, better off because I'm in public service? I, I think about my mom, a single mother who works 16 hours a day, three days a week and eight hours a day, two days a week, not in a glamorous job, but really as a nurse's aide, meaning she changed bedpans and rolled patients. Can I do something that says to her, never give up, never surrender? Because your value will be manifesting over generations. And I came to the conclusion that 100% I could do that. I, and I try to do that through the policy positions of tax reform, cutting a single mom's taxes by 70%. I had in mind my mom making slightly more than minimum wage. When I work on criminal justice reform, I have in mind not only my mother, but also the times that our houses, house was broken into. And, and, and so I have such deep respect for law enforcement. And I also have a full understanding of the fear that is real in some communities. And how do you bridge the gap? Well, African-Americans around this country, they want more law enforcement, not less. Uh, the best should wear the badge. But when you put all that together, it really is a story of, of my broken life that the pieces came back together like a puzzle. 
and the good Lord has done something miraculous with it in spite of me sometimes, to be honest with you. The president I worked for, George W. Bush, used to say that the toughest job in America was being a single mom. And I think it's page 70. Uh, you, you said, I am living proof to single moms everywhere that success is possible. 100%. There's no doubt that if you don't surrender, you can fail forward. Uh, all the obstacles become opportunities. Many of my problems became my purpose. And without any question, I am blessed to have failed my way to success. And I think so many of us, whether you're growing up in a single parent household or living in, in, in an abundant circumstance, the truth is we all have resistance. The truth is we all have headwinds. The question is, do we become more resilient or do we surrender? Do we find tenacity as a core characteristic of who we are? Or do we just say, I give up, I quit, I can't do it. What we have done as a country is become more resilient. We have increased our resolve. We have found those key components to build a more flourishing society. And I think that when you find those keys within yourself, the most amazing things are possible. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. And of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. You write about how there are some pivotal moments throughout your years that at the time didn't necessarily seem that profound. But when you look back, you say, oh, okay, that was a moment that led to this. You mentioned one of them, and I was very struck by the generosity, the, the compassion, the skill and the care of your orthodontist. And I wonder if you could just tell people about that story of when you walked in to the office and having that conversation about how, how are you going to pay? Yeah, so Dr. Monty S. Harrington, who's now gone on to, to, to be with the Lord, I was 19 years old. I walked about a mile, mile and a half to his office. I walk in the door, scared to death, uh, no money in my pocket. I just knew that those two front teeth that didn't like each other, they needed to figure out how to get along and it needed help. Uh, and so I walk up to the desk and got a young lady named Becky treated me with such respect. And I wish I could put in words how much of a difference something so small meant to me. And then walking in and sitting down and having Dr. Harrington look at my teeth and he's like, let's go to work. But before we go to work, how much can you afford? I think I said $40 a month. And his answer was, whatever you say you can afford, be committed. And he did the work. And so he taught me almost in an instant the importance of individual responsibility. He reinforced in me Yes, dream really big. Unrealistic dreams for me at that time was having braces. He said, you can have what you want. If you work for it, you honor your commitments and you show up. He didn't come pick me up. I had to get there. He didn't make the payments for me. I had to make them. But the miracle of, of relationships, the, the miracle of community is that good people will always stand in the gap. If you ask them and they see you going the, the extra mile, they will go it with you. That is throughout my life, that has been one consistent theme. 
there's another theme that I picked up on, and maybe I can bring two issues together here. One is your experience growing up where you have friends of all walks of life. And it was interesting because just recently, the New York Times reported on a study that said that for, especially for minority communities or minority people, if you grow up with friends of lots of different socioeconomic backgrounds and racial makeup and uh, that you will be more successful. And sometimes we get kind of, we congregate in our own neighborhoods, but throughout your book, you talk about these little kindnesses that come to you regardless of your skin color. Yes. And then you also talk about later on in the book about then you are now a, a senator and maybe even before you were a senator and there was I think you said liberal media elite. Yes. Would then say things about you that were so outrageous and very offensive. I mean, I'm offended on your behalf, so I can't imagine how you feel, though. I think you have a pretty thick skin. And I would just wonder if you think that America is not actually as polarized in practice as the media tends to suggest. Then no question there there is a new profit opportunity and it's called conflict. Monetizing conflict is a way of life for too many stations. And the liberal elite say the most grotesque things about me and other minority conservatives. And frankly, not only do they say them, there's no resistance to them. It's as if if you are a liberal, whether you're white or black, saying things like, calling Herschel Walker a, a Negro or, or, or talking about me as Uncle Tim or Uncle Tom, all those things are acceptable. If it were a conservative station or a conservative individual, we would be having conversations about racism. We'd have conversations about resignations. But in this day and time, red, i.e. the conservative party, is what we faced as African-Americans in the 60s and the 70s. There's this new form of discrimination that manifests based on your partisan affiliation and big liberal media condones the behavior. And when you condone that kind of discrimination, you actually encourage more of it. And so if you want less of it, have the guts and the integrity to stand in the gap and say, not on my station, will we find a way to use race as a way of making money, no matter, no matter the ideology. Yeah, I mean, it's very upsetting. I remember even Condoleezza Rice, you know, being, it seems like to me, like, who wouldn't love Condoleezza Rice? Um, Well, they, you know, to come after her, to come after you has been a a great disappointment. Uh, But I think that you, you show such grace and dignity with the way you handle it. And do you think that that comes from how you were raised? Or do you have an innate sense based on your faith of how to respond to those things. I do think, and I talk about it in my book, America Redemption Story. One of the things I talk about is how my grandfather, born in 1921, experienced racism, discrimination, and challenges that I have never seen. But, but when, I, when I met my grandfather as just a little kid, moving back into his house, there were two rules. You're never a victim, and you cannot be bitter. Becoming a Christian reinforce those really important characteristics or principles. One of the guiding principles that we saw, and I talk about it in the book, during the Mother Emanuel church shooting, 
is this concept of Matthew 5, 44, loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, and the, the concept of forgiveness that sets you free from the venom and the poison. I've had to learn that, honestly, against people in my own community. I've had to learn to forgive people who make a caricature of me so that they can make a profit. They don't look at what we do. They look at who we are associated with. And that's exactly what we were fighting against. We literally fought to be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. And yet there's been this reversal in the land where liberals suggest that it's not actually the content of your character. It's the color of your skin plus your ideology equals not fit to be here. You ended up forgiving your father. Yes. And I wonder if you could tell people about that experience, because as I've gotten older, I feel that everybody that I know has someone in their life that they are estranged from in some way. And it's not easy to take that first step. So how did you do that? And what's been the result? You know, when you're writing a book on redemption, I'll be honest with you, it, it certainly makes you look back over your life and say, have I given him a fair shake? And truth, truly, we had a lot of emotional challenges in our family. Uh, and, and, and that was one of the reasons why my mother left. But I will say without any question, writing this book, I had an opportunity to hear his story as a young man uh, in the military, Vietnam veteran, and getting into an altercation around race and being called the N-word and five guys jumping him and having to uh, defend himself, that violence and what it did to him and the returning from Vietnam, that combination, uh, PTSD was not a, a term back in those days, but, but knowing what he suffered from, really for the first time on the, the Vietnam experience and, and, the, and the altercation, had not heard that before my, my brother had, but I hadn't, it gave me a, a, a different perspective on what he had gone through, number one. Number two, the older I get, the more messy I understand life is. And so I, I really think that deference is a necessary component because I wish Matthew 7, 1 says the, the, the same measure you use, it will be given back to you. And so the older I get, the more I realize I need a lot of unmerited favor, mm -hmm. also known as grace in my life. You also talk about um, President Trump. And I thought it was so interesting to see through your mother's eyes what it was like to know him. And the way that I thought that you wrote about your relationship with him was that you had found a way to work with him to get something that you wanted, which was more opportunity. Yes. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, President Trump, I think from a policy standpoint, he's right there with President Ronald Reagan. There's no question that the policy positions that we uh, led on while we were in the majority are undeniable. More important, perhaps, than the policy positions was watching his interaction without cameras with, with all types of people, but particularly the most important person in my life, my mama, and waiting and asking for him to do a letter for her birthday and waiting for the letter to come and hoping for maybe a video. I just, I got frustrated waiting for it. And then the next thing I know on her birthday, on the way to the party, who calls? President Trump. And he has a 
10 or 12 minute conversation with my mother. And frankly, the first 90 seconds was, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. (laughs) She was blown away. And think about a single mother raising two kids, one not so smart, the other one brilliant, my brother. And all those years of sacrifice and suffering, and then to find herself on the phone on her birthday, 75th birthday, I'm sorry, mom, I told your age. <laughs> she was delighted. And then to find herself on Air Force One, traveling with the president of the United States, sitting in his chair, the kind of deference that I watched and Congress members who were on the plane watched, the kind of compassion that he spoke with, I wish we saw that on TV. I wish we saw the full picture of his personality displayed for the for the world to see and for the nation to see. You know, I was a press secretary for 43 and I got to know the 41s pretty well. And I even have had a chance to talk to the Obama people. And there is not a president that whose staff or friends and colleagues don't feel the exact same way. Wow. There's something about when the camera comes on. Yes. That for for all people. Right. It's, it's a little bit different and it's very hard to always just be yourself and relax. And one thing I thought was interesting, you said that President Trump's a very good listener. Listen, I have been in the room where the, the room would dis- disagree with me, but I've also been in the room where here he is sitting with 20 members of African-American families who've lost their loved ones to, at the hands of police and instead of trying to defend law enforcement or lead the conversation with myself, A.G. Barr and President Trump, he was silent for 40 minutes. And then he asked questions based on what he had heard. And then he directed Attorney General Barr to follow up on a couple of the cases because he said it just didn't, the pieces didn't fit well. And we're not, we're talking about all were African-Americans all had lost their loved ones to something just awful. And the president was listening. And when I, when I spoke with him after the Charlottesville incident, where I had suggested that he had compromised his moral authority, he listened to my journey from a race perspective in the deep South and the evolution as well as the pain. He listened. We don't, we don't hear that often about President Trump, and, and perhaps we don't see it on the screens often enough, but the truth is that I've been in the room and watched him in really important settings, listen to what the people who have been victimized, even if they aren't, they aren't victims, what they experienced and why that was a problem. I just have a few more questions. One of them actually led to that, which is um, your chief of staff, whose story I love in this book, and I would love to meet her one day. Um, And also I knew Congressman Wayne Allard. I used to work on for a Colorado member as well, years and years ago in the late nineties. Well, let's be honest, the mid (laughs) nineties. She comes to you and this is in chapter 16, page 178. She talks about how the black experience is what the chapter is called. And I've worked with several authors, Charles Krauthammer, Carl Rove, Peggy Noonan, George W. Bush. And each of those authors had to be pushed to write more deeply about an uncomfortable either experience or 
identity. One of the things you wrote was that racism and prejudice, it's not just a moment that you experience, but that it affects your entire identity. What do you hope people learn about you or other black men uh, from this from this book, from this chapter? One of the challenges that we have in America is that we're typically spending most of our time in our own shoes and rarely are we in anyone else's shoes. So I wanted to be as transparent and vulnerable as possible so that someone could take a walk in my shoes. And as I've said, tell the whole story, the both sides of the both sides of the ledge. One part of the ledge, though, is situations and circumstances where I've been stopped by the, by law enforcement officers for just driving while black more than 20 times. The humiliation and the sense of being inferior in the eyes of the law and the, the person wearing the badge and carrying a gun. It, it, it's, it's having someone walk up to your car with a hand on the gun and it scares you and you haven't done anything wrong. And, and it's humiliating and it can be bone crushing, but it creates scar tissue as well. And it can make you bitter towards an entire situation. And frankly, I, I, I've had this conversation with hundreds of folks, African-American men, and they, 95 or so have had a similar experience. And that's tough. At the same time, I try to tell the story in my Black experience. I tell the story of being elected the student government president the three or four years after there was a race riot at the high school that I ended up going to and becoming the president 70% white high school. I, I talk about the time that I had a car accident that changed the course of my college experience as a senior in high school and the police officer who happened to be white showed up and, and, and showed great deference and compassion towards me. So I want people to know the painful part and how it stains your soul as well as the part where you you feel respected and dignity is restored. And that's why the story of Dr. Monty S. Harrington in, in my book, America, a Redemption Story, is so really important because it, it helps to see what you can do with the power of your words to lift people up. And I know this has been a bit of a long answer, Dana, but we used to hear sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I think the exact opposite might be true, that the temporary injuries that you sustain from a broken bone, I've had them, uh, is temporary. And you, they mend and you get over it. The most powerful force on earth, Proverbs 18, 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. We can do so much good by how we treat our brothers and sisters. You know, I'm from, I work with Mercy Shifts, my husband and I do, and I remember seeing Dr. Gary um, hold this 14-year-old girl's face in his hands, and she had a tumor um, on the side of her face that in America, a dentist would have chipped off the enamel and it wouldn't have been a problem, yes. but in her situation and, and across Africa, it's a really big problem because also because they don't have iodine in their water, and he held her, her face and he said, you are so beautiful. And I looked at this girl who was dressed a little different than everybody else. And I was like, wow, being 14 is not easy anywhere. Um, but, to, but to watch him and I was like, wow, that was such a compassionate moment and really helped open my eyes to how she might have experienced that. Hey, tell everybody what you promised the high school when you um, did your campaign speech to become to, to work on the student council. 
over free lunch and, and <laughs> lots of time off. Yes, I mean that was that was one of my better speeches. It was well received <laughs> by the audience, and uh, I think you should not make promises you cannot keep. Uh, I did tell them it was a bit of a joke, but we we did uh, always focus on in high school having a good time and making sure the students uh, didn't feel appreciated, but they felt like they were going to get something for nothing. Yeah, for for a free market economist, I was kind of surprised that that was your instinct. Uh, but I know that the promises do work. Hey, are are the Republicans doing enough to reach out to minority communities? I thought it was very interesting that when you decided to run, you you first go to the Democratic office and they basically tell you to sit down and wait. And you yes. didn't wait. You walked across the street, go to the Republican office, and they said, let's give it a shot. I don't think we are. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I'd like to, I, I should rethink that answer a little bit, but I should say it this way. We should spend more time going to places that we're not invited, bottom line. And, and we don't. We, we, we can make so much headway, especially right now, current conditions with gas prices over $4 a gallon in many parts of the country. That's a great time to have the conversation about the economic policy positions of the Republican Party. You want to talk about the GOP, the Great Opportunity Party? Think about what we did from 2016 to 2020. We literally lowered unemployment to the lowest rate in the history of the country for African-Americans and Hispanics, but we don't, we don't go to the community to tell them. We took a funding for historically Black colleges and universities to the highest level ever and made it permanent for the first time in the history of America but we didn't share those accomplishments with people in minority communities. If we simply show up, we will see an increase in voter percentage from minority communities. All right, my last question is about the last chapter. I thought that the book stuck the landing. The conclusion is so important. And you write on page 197, you say, if you're 18 on the 2024 election, Imagine your life. You'll be 64 in 2070. What do you want it to look like? And I really, li- I really liked being challenged at the end to, to think that way and just wondered why you decided to end the book with a challenge like that. Yeah, for the last several years, I've been working on America 2030. I think we spend too much time as elected officials thinking about election cycles if we can get away from thinking about our success as individual candidates and think collectively about our success as a nation, we'll produce more, more of a significant nation with amazing success. And so when I think about uh, in 2018, uh, the first grader who is graduated from high school in 2030 or the 18-year-old in 2024 voting for the first time, what are the decisions that you're making to build a country that you're gonna to leave to your great grandkids, not just to your kids or your grandkids, but your great grandkids. And I think taking the responsibility earlier on is the way that we build a sustainable, resilient America. I said that was the last question, but this is actually going to be my last question. No problem. Does your optimistic outlook, can it match the mood of the country today? I think that's a great question. I will say something that is a tad controversial. Sometimes when you're angry, you're really sad. The anger that we're seeing around the country, I think sometimes is because we're exhausted, we're tired, and, and, and we really are weary at times. You, you, you hide that behind anger. I think our country is hungry and thirsty for 
are thirsting for an opportunity, an opportunity-driven conversation, something that's hopeful and optimistic, something that says with these three or four pieces, you can live your highest ideal. You can experience your greatest dream. It's the notion of Ephesians 3.20 that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. That is our reality today. Not tomorrow, not when things get better, but today. And there's something we can do, like that 18-year-old in 2024, there's something we can do today to make our lives better and to make our country better. If we focus on what we can do and not what we don't control, wherever you are, we will be a better nation. I could go through every page with you because I found something on every page. We didn't even talk about how you were an amazing entrepreneur, have business experience, and that's how you were able to make a lot of these policy decisions and lead everyone. The Alzheimer's that your grandmother had and your work on the Committee on Aging, your push for school choice. All of it comes back to redemption and opportunity. And congratulations on the book. It's really great. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. I hope everyone listening Go out and buy a copy of America, A Redemption Story, today. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.